be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 1, Chapters 14 and 15 of A Journey to the Centre of the Earth by Jules Verne. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 14 The Real Journey Commences Our real journey had now commenced. Hitherto our courage and determination had overcome all difficulties. We were fatigued at times, and that was all. Now we were about to encounter the unknown and fearful dangers. I had not as yet ventured to take a glimpse down the horrible abyss into which in a few minutes I was about to plunge. The fatal moment had, however, at last arrived. I had still the option of refusing or accepting a share in this foolish and audacious enterprise, but I was ashamed to show more fear than the Eder Duck Hunter. Hans seemed to accept the difficulties of the journey so tranquilly, with such calm indifference, with such perfect recklessness of all danger, that I actually blushed to appear less of a man than he. Had I been alone with my uncle, I should certainly have sat down and argued the point fully, but in the presence of the guide I held my tongue. I gave one moment to the thought of my charming cousin, and then I advanced to the mouth of the central shaft. It measured about a hundred feet in diameter, which made about three hundred in circumference. I leaned over a rock which stood on its edge and looked down. My hair stood on end, my teeth chattered, my limbs trembled. I seemed utterly to lose my centre of gravity, while my head was in a sort of whirl like that of a drunken man. There is nothing more powerful than this attraction towards an abyss. I was about to fall headlong into the gaping well when I was drawn back by a firm and powerful hand. It was that of hands. I had not taken lessons enough 
but the Frausekirk of Copenhagen in the art of looking down from lofty immenses without blinking. However, few as the minutes were during which I gazed down this tremendous and even wondrous shaft, I had a sufficient glimpse of it to give me some idea of its physical confirmation. Its sides, which were almost as perpendicular as those of a well, presented numerous projections, which doubtless would assist our descent. It was a sort of wild and savage staircase, without banister or fence. A rope fastened above, near the surface, would certainly support our weight and enable us to reach the bottom. But how, when we had arrived at its utmost depth, were we to loosen it above? This was, I thought, a question of some importance. My uncle, however, was one of those men who are nearly always prepared with expedients. He hit upon a very simple method of obviating this difficulty. He unrolled a cord about as thick as my thumb, and at least four hundred feet in length. He allowed about half of it to go down the pit, and catch it in a hit over a great block of lava which stood on the edge of the precipice. This done, he threw the second half after the first. Each of us could now descend by catching the two cords in one hand. When about two hundred feet below, all the explorer had to do was to let go one end and pull away at the other when the cord would come falling at his feet. In order to go down farther, all that was necessary was to continue the same operation. This was a very excellent proposition, and no doubt a correct one. Going down appeared to me easy enough. It was the coming up again that now occupied my thoughts. Now, said my uncle, as soon as he had completed this important preparation, let us see about the baggage. It must be divided into three separate parcels, and each of us must carry one on his back. I allude to the more important and fragile articles. My worthy and ingenious uncle did not appear to consider that we came under the denomination. Hans, he continued, you will take charge of the tools and some of the provisions. You... Harry must take possession of another third of the provisions and of the arms. 
I will load myself with the rest of the eatables, and with the more delicate instruments. But, I exclaimed, our clothes, this mass of cord and ladders, who will undertake to carry them down? They will go down by themselves. And how so? I asked. You shall see. My uncle was not fond of half measures, nor did he like anything in the way of hesitation. Giving his orders to Hans, he had the whole of the non-fragile articles made up into one bundle, and the packet, firmly and solidly fastened, was simply pinched over the edge of the gulf. I heard the moaning of the suddenly displaced air and the noise of falling stones. My uncle leaned over the abyss, followed the descent of his luggage with a perfectly self-satisfied air and did not rise until it had completely disappeared from sight. Now then, he cried, it is our turn. I put it in good faith to any man of common sense. Was it possible to hear this energetic cry without a shudder? The professor fastened his case of instruments on his back. Hans took charge of the tools, I of the arms. The descent then commenced in the following order. Hans went first, my uncle followed, and I went last. Our progress was made in profound silence. A silence only troubled by the fall of pieces of rock, which breaking from the jagged sides, fell with a roar into the depths below. I allowed myself to slide, so to speak, holding frantically on the double cord with one hand, and with the other, keeping myself off the rocks by the assistance of my iron-shod pole. One idea was all the time impressed upon my mind. I feared that the upper support would fail me. The cord appeared to me far too fragile to bear the weight of three such persons as we were with our luggage. I made as little use of it as possible, trusting my own agility and doing miracles in the way of feats of dexterity and strength upon the projecting shelves and spurs of lava which my feet seemed to clutch as strongly as my hands. The guide went first, I have said, and when one of the slippery and frail supports broke from under his feet, he had recourse to his usual monosyllabic way of speaking. Gif act. Attention, look out. 
repeated my uncle. In about half an hour, we reached a kind of small terrace formed by a fragment of rock projecting some distance from the sides of the shaft. Hands now began to haul upon the cord on one side only, the other going as quietly upward as the other came down. It fell at last, bringing with it a shower of small stones, lava and dust, a disagreeable kind of rain or hail. While we were seated on this extraordinary bench, I ventured once more to look downwards. With a sigh, I discovered that the bottom was still wholly invisible. We were, then, going direct to the interior of the earth. The performance with the court recommenced, and a quarter of an hour later, we had reached to the depth of another two hundred feet. I have very strong doubts if the most determined geologist would, during that descent, have studied the nature of the different layers of earth around him. I did not trouble my head much about the matter, whether we were among the combustible carbon, Silurians, or primitive soil, I neither knew nor cared to know. Not so the inveterate professor. He must have taken notes all the way down, for, at one of our halts, he began a brief lecture. The farther we advance, said he, the greater is my confidence in the result. The disposition of these volcanic strata absolutely confirms the theories of Sir Humphrey Davy. We are still within the region of the primordial soil, the soil in which took place the chemical operations of metals becoming inflamed by coming in contact with the air and water. I at once regret the old and now forever exploded theory of a central fire. At all events, we shall soon know the truth. Such was the everlasting conclusion to which he came. I, however, was very far from being in humour to discuss the matter. I had something else to think of. My silence was taken for consent, and still we continued to go down. At the expiration of three hours, we were, to all appearance, as far off as ever from the bottom of the well. When I looked upwards, however, I could see that the upper orifice was every minute decreasing in size. The sides of the shaft 
were getting closer and closer together. We were approaching the regions of eternal night. And still, we continued to descend. At length, I noticed that when pieces of stone were detached from the sides of this stupendous precipice, they were swallowed up with less noise than before. The final sound was sooner heard. We were approaching the bottom of the abyss. As I had been very careful to keep account of all the changes of chord which took place, I was able to tell exactly what the depth we had reached, as well as the time it had taken. We had shifted the rope twenty-eight times, each operation taking a quarter of an hour, which in all made seven hours. To this had to be added twenty-eight pauses, in all ten and a half hours. We started at one. It was now, therefore, about eleven o'clock at night. It does not require great knowledge of arithmetic to know that twenty-eight times two hundred feet makes five thousand six hundred feet in all, more than an English mile. When I was making this mental calculation, a voice broke the silence. It was the voice of Hans. Halt, he cried. I checked myself very suddenly, just at the moment when I was about to kick my uncle on the head. We have reached the end of our journey, said the worthy professor in a satisfied tone. What? The interior of the earth? said I, slipping down to his side. No, you stupid fellow, but we have reached the bottom of the well, and I suppose there is no farther progress to be made, I hopefully exclaimed. Oh yes, I can dimly see a sort of tunnel which turns off obliquely to the right. At all events, we must see about that tomorrow. Let us up now and seek slumber as best we may. I thought it time, but made no observations on that point. I was fairly launched on a desperate course, and all I had to do was to go forward, hopefully and trustingly. It was not even now quite dark, the light flittering down in a most extraordinary manner. We opened the provision bag, ate a frugal supper, and each did his best to find a bed amid the pile of stones, dirt and lava which had accumulated for ages at the bottom of the shaft. I happened to grope out the pile of ropes 
ladders, and clothes which we had thrown down, and upon them I stretched myself. After such a day's labour, my rough bed seemed as soft as down. For a while I lay in a sort of pleasant trance. Presently, after lying quietly for some minutes, I opened my eyes and looked upwards. As I did so, I made out a brilliant little dot at the extremity of this long, gigantic telescope. It was a star without scintillating rays. According to my calculations, it must be beta in the constellation of the little bear. After this little bit of astronomical recreation, I dropped into a sound sleep. Chapter 15 We Continue Our Descent At eight o'clock the next morning, a faint kind of dawn of day awoke us. The thousand and one prisms of the lava collected the light as it passed and brought it to us like a shower of sparks. We were able with ease to see objects around us. Well, Harry, my boy, cried the delighted professor, rubbing his hands together. What say you now? Did you ever pass a more tranquil night in our house in the Congestrat? No deafening sounds of cartwheels, no cries of hawkers, no bad language from boatmen or watermen. Well, uncle, we are quite at the bottom of this well, but to me... There is something terrible in this calm. Why, said the professor hotly, one would say you are already beginning to be afraid. How will you get on presently? Do you know that as yet we have not penetrated one inch into the bowels of the earth? What can you mean, sir? was my bewildered and astonished reply. I mean to say that we have only just reached the soil of the island itself. This long vertical tube, which ends at the bottom of the crater of Sneffels, ceases here just about on a level with the sea. Are you sure, sir? Quite sure. Consult the barometer. It was quite true that the mercury, after rising gradually in the instrument, as long as our descent was taking place, had stopped precisely at 29 degrees. You perceive, said the professor, we have as yet only to endure the pressure of air. 
I am curious to replace the barometer by the manometer. The barometer, in fact, was about to become useless as soon as the weight of the air was greater than what was calculated as the above level of the ocean. But, said I, is it not very much to be feared that this ever-increasing pressure may not in the end turn out very painful and inconvenient? No, said he. We shall descend very slowly, and our lungs will be gradually accustomed to breathe compressed air. It is well known that aeronauts have gone so high as to be nearly without air at all. Why, then, should we not accustom ourselves to breathe when we have, say, a little too much of it? For myself, I am certain I shall prefer it. Let us not lose a moment. Where is the packet which preceded us in our descent? I smilingly pointed it out to my uncle. Hans had not seen it and believed it caught somewhere above us. Hupe, as he phrased it. Now said my uncle. Let us breakfast and break fast like people who have a long day's work before them. Biscuit and dried meat, washed down by some mouthfuls of water flavoured with sheden, was the material of our luxurious meal. As soon as it was finished, My uncle took from his pocket a notebook destined to be filled by memoranda of our travels. He had already placed his instruments in order, and this was what he wrote. Monday, June 29th. Chronometer, 8 hours, 17 minutes, morning. Barometer. 29.6 inches. Thermometer. 6 degrees. 43 degrees Fahrenheit. Direction. East-south-east. This last observation referred to the obscure gallery and was indicated to us by the compass. Now, Harry, cried the professor, in an enthusiastic tone of voice. We are truly about to take our first step into the interior of the earth. Never before visited by man since the first creation of the world. You may consider, therefore, that at this precise moment our travels really commence. As my uncle made his remark, he took in one hand the rum-cough coil apparatus which hung round his neck, and with the other he put the electric current into the communication with the worm of the lantern, and a bright light at once 
illuminated that dark and gloomy tunnel. The effect was magical. Hans, who carried the second apparatus, had it also put into operation. This ingenious application of electricity to practical purposes enabled us to move along by the light of an artificial day amid even the flow of the most inflammable and combustible gases. Forward, cried my uncle. Each took up his burden. Hands went first, my uncle followed, and I going third. We entered the somber gallery. Just as we were about to engulf ourselves in this dismal passage, I lifted up my head, and through the tube-like shaft saw that Iceland sky I was never to see again. Was it the last I should ever see of any sky? The stream of lava flowing from the bowels of the earth in 1219 had forced itself a passage through the tunnel. It lined the whole of the inside with its thick and brilliant coating. The electric light added very greatly to the brilliance of the effect. The great difficulty of our journey now began. How were we to prevent ourselves from slipping down the steep inclined plane. Happily, some cracks, abrasures of the soil, and other irregularities served the place of steps, and we descended slowly, allowing our heavy luggage to slip on before at the end of a long cord. But that which served as steps under our feet became in other places stalactites. The lava, very porous in certain places, took the form of little round blisters, crystals of opaque quartz adorned with limpid drops of natural glass suspended to the roof like lusters, seemed to take fire as we pass beneath them. One would have fancied that the genie of romance were illuminating their underground palaces to receive the sons of men. Magnificent, glorious, I cried in a moment of involuntary enthusiasm. What a spectacle, uncle. Do you not admire these variegated shades of lava? which run through a whole series of colours, from reddish-brown to pale yellow, by the most insensible degrees. And these crystals, they appear like luminous globes. You are beginning to see the charms of travel, Master Harry, cried my uncle. Wait a bit. Until we advance farther, what we have as yet discovered is nothing. Onward, my boy, onwards. 
It would have been a far more correct and appropriate expression, had he said, let us slide, for we were going down an inclined plane with perfect ease. The compass indicated that we were moving in a southeasterly direction. The flow of the lava had never turned to the right or the left. It had the inflexibility of a straight line. Nevertheless, to my surprise, we found no perceptible increase in heat. This proved the theories of Humphrey Davy to be founded on truth, and more than once I found myself examining the thermometer in silent astonishment. Two hours after our departure, it only marked 54 degrees Fahrenheit. I had every reason to believe from this that our descent was far more horizontal than vertical. As for discovering the exact depth to which we had attained, nothing could be easier. The professor, as he advanced, measured the angles of deviation and inclination, but he kept the result of his observations to himself. About eight o'clock in the evening, my uncle gave the signal for halting. Hans seated himself on the ground. The lamps were hung to fissures in the lava rocks. We were now in a large cavern where air was not wanting. On the contrary, it abounded. What could be the cause of this? To what atmospheric agitation could be ascribed this draught? But this was a question which I did not care to discuss just then. Fatigue and hunger had made me incapable of reasoning. An unceasing march of seven hours had not been kept up without great exhaustion. I was really and truly worn out, and delighted enough I was to hear the word halt. Hans laid out some provisions on a lump of lava, and we each supped with keen relish. One thing, however, caused us great uneasiness. Our water reserve was already half exhausted. My uncle had full confidence in finding subterranean sources, but hitherto we had completely failed in doing so. I could not help calling my uncle's attention to the circumstance. And you are surprised at this total absence of springs, he said. Doubtless, I am very uneasy on the point. We have certainly not enough water to last us five days. Be quite easy on that matter, continued my uncle. I answer for it we shall find 
plenty of water. In fact, far more than we shall want. But when? When we once get through this crust of lava, how can you expect springs to force their way through these solid stone walls? But what is there to prove that this concrete mass of lava does not extend to the center of the earth? I don't think we have as yet done much in a vertical way. What puts that into your head, my boy? asked my uncle mildly. Well, it appears to me that if we had descended very far below the level of the sea, we should find it rather hotter than we have. According to your system, said my uncle, but what does the thermometer say? Scarcely fifteen degrees by Roma, which is only an increase of nine since our departure. Well, and what conclusion does that bring you to? inquired the professor. The deduction I draw from this is simple. According to the most exact observations, the augmentation of the temperature of the interior of the earth is one degree for every hundred feet. But certain local causes may considerably modify this figure. Thus, at Yakust in Siberia, it has been remarked that the heat increases a degree every 36 feet. Difference evidently depends on the conductability of certain rocks. In the neighborhood of an extinct volcano, it has been remarked that the elevation of temperature was only one degree in every five and twenty feet. Let us, then, go upon this calculation, which is the most favorable, and calculate. Calculate away, my boy. Nothing easier, said I, pulling out my notebook and pencil. Nine times one hundred and twenty-five feet makes a depth of eleven hundred and twenty-five feet. Archimedes could not have spoken more geometrically. Well? Well, according to my observations, we are at least ten thousand feet below the level of the sea. Can it? be possible. Either my calculation is correct, or there is no truth in figures. The calculations of the professor were perfectly correct. We were already six thousand feet deeper down in the bowels of the earth than anyone had ever been before. The lowest known depth to which man had hitherto penetrated was in the mines of Kitzbühel, in Tyrol, and those of Württemberg. 
The temperature, which should have been 81, was in this place only 15. This was a matter for serious consideration.